House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 1, second review. The first time we watched it was Sunday night late after putting the kids to bed. We watched it, quickly talked about it, but this time we went over it with a fine-tooth comb, scene by scene, watching it for a second time so we can better discuss it. So the first one was kind of a first impressions thing, and then this is going to be our more deeper dive. Hello? Hello. All right. So I took notes for every single scene. We can Some will go through quickly, some can be a little bit longer. For the record, Jay has never taken notes for anything in his life except for for these podcasts. So this is a really important novel situation. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, note taker. <laughs> no. Journaler, memory person. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning again. So this time we'll do it, like I said, scene by scene. So it starts with the Great Council, which we briefly discussed before. And just one thing I wanted to do is compare it to the terribly lame Great Council at the end of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. where there's like eight people. <laughs> when you think of a great council, you think of what we saw here, yeah. where there's lots of people, thousands of people. And obviously the circumstances were completely different. And Jaehaerys had just overseen however many decades of peace and prosperity for the kingdom. And at the end of Game of Thrones, it had just been some of the worst several years that there was. So it's understandable that it would be different, but it was the contrast was pretty stark, I thought. Yeah, there was definitely, you could see the chaos after all the war um, of Game of Thrones, but I think it was 70 years of peace, which is a lot of people's lifetimes. There's a couple generations already in there. So some people, it's just, they have no idea. Yeah, and this comes up a few times, uh, the the effects of all this peace. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it can be real confusing to keep track of who's who. So they were trying to decide who was going to be, sit on the Iron Throne, and it was between Viserys and Rhaenys. And they are both grandchildren of Jaehaerys. And Rhaenys was the eldest. Right. Rhaenys is the oldest grand, oldest surviving grandchild. And Viserys... Like, I think she, yeah, she was... Wasn't she, like, the daughter of the eldest son, too, that died? I'm not sure. He had two sons that both died, that were both in line, and then she was... Would have been passed to her if she were a male. So in terms of true succession, she would have... Should have had it. If there was no was sexism. Yeah. Right. And Viserys was the oldest male grandchild, so he got it. And one thing they, they make clear in the book, I think it was pretty clear here, but not as clear, is that it was basically a vote, which kind of undermines Game of Thrones. The big broken wheel that Daenerys was supposed to do was like democracy, right? Mm-hmm. But this was settled democratically. <laughs> All the lords and everything voted. It's clear in, in the book, at least, because in, in the time since we did our first podcast, I reread the necessary chapters in the book. And so... You took notes and did research. Yeah. This is unprecedented. I'm maturing in my old age. (laughs) But the vote wasn't close. The series won like 20 to 1 or something like that. And then to comment on the acting here, I I thought both the reactions were subtle and Rainey's was stone-faced. She looked, you know, disappointed or that's not the right word. She she was masking how she felt, Mm -hmm. but it was disapproval. But Viserys didn't look particularly happy. He, they even mentioned in this episode that they don't think he even really wanted to rule. In the after the episode thing. Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, which we didn't watch after the, the first time we watched the show. But right, so he you know smiled and everything, but he looked not particularly thrilled about it. So yeah. it, it doesn't seem like he's lusting after power exactly. Right. When you mentioned Rainey's a reaction in that one scene when they announce who will be the, the next ruler, and she's someone where still waters run deep. 
I feel like there's a lot beneath that surface. She shows, like, she knows how to be in court. This is something that comes up in Game of Thrones a lot, and it's coming up already in this show where there's a certain way of how to survive and do well in court. Cersei was very good at that. People who are more hot-headed or impulsive, who are a little too full of themselves, I think that's like their fear of if Damon were the, the next ruler is he just, he doesn't know how to exist in court. Like one, be a ruler, but also exist in court. And Rainey's, I think she knows what she's doing. The episode is so focused on Damon and Rhaenyra that you almost forget about Rainey's. But upon the second viewing, she seems um, much more like a big third factor, along with her powerful husband that, that we'll talk right. about later, you know. She's uh, kind of more secondary when she's brought up. It's often because of her husband or someone else, like, asking for her favor. It's never really because she's a principal in the scene yet. And then it goes right to the intro, which, you know, again, we briefly talked about it, but it's interesting. There's very little music it was just a three-headed dragon nothing to say about that except for that i was kind of surprised that it didn't give us the music and the whole thing maybe like the they first will ones. yeah right maybe they change it because they, they did change it in the original series a few times so i wouldn't mind a cool intro yeah it's one of the either. few times where i don't want to skip intro <laughs> right yeah the music is so good and you also kind of like i liked watching all the like mechanical things yeah. and you can almost predict some story based on how the intro goes but not here with this all right, then the next scene is we see up in the sky, the gold dragon, Cyrax, being ridden by Rhaenyra. And so they fly above King's Landing. And one thing is that you see the people below and they kind of look up, but they don't. It's like when I look up at an airplane. They're, mm-hmm. they're so used to dragons mm-hmm. that it's, there's, it's not amazing like in Game of Thrones. I think they said in the beginning there was at the peak of their power, there was 10 dragon riders or something. So mm-hmm. dragons are pretty common here. They had 10 adult dragons. And okay. I think... That should not be confused with dragon riders. So, for example, in Game of Thrones, there were three adult dragons, but only one dragon rider for the majority of it. Yeah, until John. Until John at the very end, yeah. Which we'll talk about John again later. Well, and, and, and speaking of dragon riders, this was something that I had briefly thought of before, but it didn't come up in our last episode. But they actually bring it up several times in this episode. And isn't there, like, huge significance of who's a dragon rider, and what that means in terms of being a ruler. So basically, you don't have a dragon, or you don't know how to ride or tame one. You're nothing. And at one point, they even say, without them, we're just like everyone else. There was a couple times in this episode where they're even acknowledging the fact that we have dragons is what makes us special. And so in this case, who do we know has dragons at this point? And I don't know yet about... Cornus, what's his name? Yeah, Corlys Valerian. Mm-hmm. Well, Valerians don't ride dragons. Okay. Yeah. So I find that very interesting because that is kind of basically what I learned in Game of Thrones. But then even here, we, you know, we start off seeing Rhaenyra's on her dragon and they make it a point to talk about what makes us different, what makes us rulers. And it's true, it's not just in their heads. I mean, it's why Danny could take over. Everybody only gave a shit about Danny because she had dragons. And not just the magical mysticism component, but because they are the nuclear option, right. as she showed in the end. But what we saw in this episode is two people who are very adept at riding dragons. They were also the only people who spoke Old Valyrian, which I find interesting because I got the impression that Rhaenyra's and Daemon, they spoke uh, Valyrian twice. 
And they both did it in times that kind of gives the impression that no one else does. So it's kind of like where you can speak another language around a group of people and get away with saying with whatever you want. Yeah, only in this episode was it Damon and Rhaenyra who ride the dragons. And just to get their names down, Cyrax is Rhaenyra's dragon and and Caraxes is Damon's dragon. And I think with there being potentially many dragons in the show, we should kind of get to know them as characters. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to remember their names, even though they're, they're a little bit hard to remember. But another thing we saw is that there was dragon uh, tamers or dragon zoo people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So when she dragon got dragon keepers, uh, yeah, right, dragon keepers, right. So when she got off the dragon, there was like these people that kind of like landed the plane, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I think one of them was in training, though. Right, yeah, there was a younger one and an older one, which and also the, shows, though, that it there's it's a knowledge you pass on. Right, there's a skill there. There's a whole industry of dragon keepers, apparently. And they keep the dragons inside. Uh, yeah, yep. From what I remember of Game of Thrones is they started keeping them inside and that caused them to get smaller and smaller and smaller over time. So by at one point, this was talked about in, in the original Game of Thrones in a scene where they were like the size of dogs. Yeah. So yeah, you I have think the original the ones were the size one. of cats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Big mistake. And that's why Danny's dragon was so big because they let it, let it loose. Drogon. Um, and then we meet, I, I guess he's a Kingsguard or a, a White Cloak, the bald guy from Outlander. Sir, uh, I actually did write his name down. Harold Westerling, Sir Harold Westerling. Oh, Sir Harold Westerling. So he is Rhaenyra's bodyguard, apparently. And this must be a great descendant of Jane Westerling that comes into play in the Game of Thrones series. Yeah, for you non-book readers, Rob Stark married Jane Westerling, and that's what ultimately led to his demise. Yeah. He did not marry Talia, was that her name? Yeah. From in the show. So, yeah, there's a connection there. And there's a lot of connections like this throughout the show. Um, but well, most... it just also shows how ancient, or at least how far back some of these houses go. I mean, I guess it's only a couple hundred years with this show and Game of Thrones, but still. Right. And then um, the next scene is Renera meets her mother, Emma, and they discuss the pregnancy, which we discussed in our first podcast, you know, the battlefield of, of birth and everything. I was actually thinking about that more, surprise, surprise. And I think there's a really big distinction that should be made about the men's battlefield and the women's battlefield, because the women's battlefield is really 100% due to chance. They have no control over whether or not they conceive, whether or not they give uh, have a live birth, whether or not that birth is a son, and whether or not that child survives. And so... It's not it, like a skill, like combat. Correct. Yeah. So in combat, don't get me wrong, there's probably a fair amount of chance there. But it's not 100% like this. I mean, it, well, okay, maybe not 100% because that's absolute, but pretty darn close. Yeah. But you can train. This is something we see Arya do. You can train to become a ninja assassin you can train to become skilled at uh, battlefield planning we see rob stark do that and tywin lannister there's so many things you can do to better yourself but yet so it's really you can see this distinct unfairness of like talking about these as the battlefields for the sexes and yet women don't really have much of a shot like it's just it's the same way of someone who is born to be a slave and someone who's born to be a ruler you just happen to be born to the right family and no choice in it really at all yeah so the parallels are limited or the analogy is limited between battle even though it's a powerful metaphor it's not not quite right um well the agency aspect of what you can actually do is is i think an important distinction 
yeah, and that you know will of course come in very importantly later, which we'll we'll talk to when we get to the birth scene. But speaking of Arya, one thing I noticed on the rewatch is Rhaenyra, uh, Rhaenyra, and Arya have a lot of parallels. Yeah. So the first one is just you know the excitedness of riding the dragon and how she's kind of more of an adventurous one. But then in the scene with her mother, she directly says that she'd rather be a knight than mm-hmm. than you know the whatever birthing battlefield. Well, and this is young Rhaenyra, too. There's going to be another actress who plays an, an older one. And so you also get this element of that young Arya in the beginning of that first season where she's just so young, and that's when she first gets Needle. And So that's confirmed, that they're going to do a time jump? Uh, I just happened to see... Um, it was a funny clip of they were interviewing <clears throat> some of the actors, and I was like, well, who's that person? And I had to look it up and... They they did have it. so there's going to be two different actors for both Rhaenyra and Elise. What's her name? Uh, Alicent. Uh, Alicent. Yeah, both of them are going to have older ones, I guess. Well, having read the book or reread the chapter, I, I think there has to be a time jump. It's like this all takes place over a very long period of time. Okay. And I'll I'll, I'll talk about that later when we get to Damon. But it's um they compressed a lot into this episode. But yeah, there's that makes sense. Well, and speaking of parallels also between Arya and, and Rhaenyra, there's a lot of grief and loss very early on. So Arya loses her father in the first season quite tragically, and she's quite overcome by it. But the Arya we get at the very end when she's exposed to death, she's not as upset. You can see that change of from child to woman. And I have a feeling we might see something similar here with Rhaenyra of this tragic loss of her mom and brother having to be the one to stand tall um, during the burial, and she has to tell her her dragon. Uh, Cyrax. Cyrax. <laughs> she has to. She has to be the one to tell Cyrax to to light them on fire, and I think that's custom there. So I don't know if it's necessarily maybe as traumatic as it would be for like someone from our culture and age, but. It's just the fact that she had to be the one to step up to do it at a time when she could have been depending on the adults around her. And yet they made a whole scene about how she had to be the one to step up. So I think we watched a huge growth moment of she's she's making that bridge from child to, to woman, from child to adult here. Right. And also Viserys does not have a dragon or as far as we can tell, does not have a dragon. Mm-hmm. So it, it would kind of make sense that Rhaenyra's would have to uh, give the command. Or but, sorry, sorry, Reyna would have to give the command. Renera. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have Damon right there who also has a dragon, who also has a seat at the council. And so he's in a position of power where she's the cupbearer. She does not. Right. And he also is in charge of the city watch. Like, I honestly think with his age, his connection to the family and his... Um, his uh, position, he actually really would have been the one, but yet not. And and he was quite compassionate to her there. And um, cupbearer. Who else was a cupbearer? Oh, yeah, Arya. Arya yep. was a cupbearer. Yep. So one thing I have to say really quick about this whole dragon thing. They said it twice. Both her parents did it. Do dragons really stink? Because I remember like the stink-like horse, and I know that's a real thing, and that makes sense, but, but horses have fur. Right. Or yeah. hair. I don't know. This is a new thing, obviously, that they didn't talk about in Game of Thrones. And I think what they might be doing here is distinguishing between dragon riders and non-dragon riders. Okay. Be- because it's like a snake or an alligator. Yeah. So I don't know. I'll have to ask somebody who has these as a pet or something. <laughs> but do they stink the way an animal with fur does? Right. Because otherwise I found that funny when the mom's like, you stink of dragon. 
And then the dad like smells it on her. Well, the fact that Viserys and Emma do not ride dragons and maybe haven't in a very long time. Like there's a lot of symbolism in this show and we'll talk about it in some various different scenes. But that Viserys is in charge, but not a dragon rider. And so much so to where they both comment on her stench after riding a dragon might symbolize something. Okay, so the next scene is at the small council. One thing we see right off the bat is Viserion is laughing and they're kind of hanging out with each other. It looks kind of more casual. It's not so serious as a lot of the small council meetings we've seen in the past. And Corliss brings up this triarchy thing. So there's some, some group that is, is causing problems somewhere and he brings it up and he brings it up twice and then he gets shot down by Hightower who's like, all right, we got it. Thanks. You know, and that's some um, pretty... I think this is a possible foreshadowing um, and like another symbolism moment where Corliss is trying to do something and he's being shot down by Hightower and Corliss, in, in my guess here, is, is correct. And Hightower is either missing the point or he's too focused on his long game that he's not really paying attention to something. Right. He's also using his authority to end the conversation. And then another just little thing is that Corliss didn't drink. The rest were getting wine and he, he blocked his cup and didn't drink. So I think that's just... It's a very Tywin move. Right, yeah. he's This guy's uh, got his head in the game. You well, know, it's probably he's why he's sharp. the shipmaster, what'd you call him? Yeah, the master of ships. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's what I call him, master of ships. Um, and <clears throat> the small council meetings are kind of weird because, one, they have those little orb things, those balls, which we don't really know what those are. Like, <laughs> if you got a... It's like if you're in your seat, there's a light on to indicate you're present. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's, that's new. But then also there's however many people on the council that there is, but we only really know three of them. You know, the other ones are like kind of vague. I don't know if you find out their names or like... When was, you always have certain staples. There's always a grand maester there. Right. And, and we hear him talk and stuff, but he does, he's not as... They're not making a point for us to know him as much as like Corliss or right. Hightower. Corliss, Hightower, and Viserion are dominating the discussion. And the other ones are, at, at this point, for me, basically interchangeable. Like, I don't know who they are except for the, the maester. And then, so this first time it comes up that Viserys wants a son, you know, and that he's sure that this is going to happen. And then they also discuss Damon. And... Um, I think it, it's something to know what we had said about Viserys that he might have been like a reluctant leader. I can't help but wonder how much he wanted a son because he felt it was a duty. Like, don't get me wrong, I think he wanted a son because he wanted a son, but also this sense of duty of knowing what it would represent for the realm. Like he is still, okay, you've you've made me your ruler. Okay, as part of my job as ruler, I'm supposed to give you a son and I haven't done that. So I think that there's a lot of uh, pressure that he has been under for this. Right, yeah. His his desire for a son isn't doesn't seem I don't know what the word would be, like self centered or cruel exactly. It's like it sort of is, but it's also just if he's as concerned about the succession as everybody else and you know, up to this point at least, it just makes sense that he would want a son and they are all worried about Damon. Damon is the, the natural successor and even though Viserys defends him and considers him as his blood and everything, I mean he's gotta see that there is a screw loose there and mm-hmm. he'd be danger even if he doesn't say it out loud. And then finally, we are introduced to Damon in the next scene. And of course, what is he doing? He's sitting on the Iron Throne. And there's a parallel with this as well. Yep, of course. Yeah, you brought that up the first time. Is um, That's how we meet Jamie. Or that's not how we meet Jamie in the show. But that's how Jamie is famous for sitting on the Iron Throne after killing the Mad King. 
Yep, right after he kills the Mad King, he is sitting on the Iron Throne. And whether Jamie, what that means is ambiguous, because Jamie doesn't want the throne. Right. But it plants the seed in everyone's mind that he does. Yes. And it's hard to tell at this point with Damon what his intentions are. And when we get to the next small council scene where they discuss that, they there's some really good quotes in there. But this is the first time we meet him. And when Rhaenyra comes in, she asks her bodyguard, does the king know that he's here? And yes. And he says no. Which is interesting because what this signified to me is that Sir Harold Westerling, that particular bodyguard, he was there when she got off her horse. They had that whole scene or exchange about how he looked very nervous and apprehensive when she goes for rides and he feels better when she's on the ground. Um, But here, he purposely withheld something from the king for her. So I think we're seeing already loyalty of a certain type of him to her, even over the current present king. Right, and I don't know if it would be his job to spread that word, but but yeah, the the dragon people like somehow the king doesn't know it. They're not telling him that. But that, he he tells Rhaenyra. Right. He doesn't tell Viserys. Yeah. Or he doesn't tell uh, Hightower. So there there's a clear thing of where who he tells and what happens, and you know there could be a lot of different reasons for that, um, but because I think Rhaenyra has a calming effect on Damon, but I don't think that's what the reason why. Yeah. Right. I would assume it's some kind of loyalty, like you said. Or, you know, one of the, one of the White Cloak's jobs, or the Kingsguard, I can't remember if they're called White Cloak's, but the Kingsguard job is to, to keep the king's secrets, right? So if, she's, if he's her personal bodyguard, he might be applying that standard to her. But it is interesting. And then, right, they speak Valerian, so these are the only two, as, as you discussed. So in this scene, though, you do see they're, they're speaking Valerian, which I think signifies that it's meant just for them to talk. And not for other people to hear. And But what they end up discussing here is how Damon is the heir. Damon's kind of talking like, well, I'm the heir. And she's like, not yet until I have a brother. And he's like, I'm still it now. Because I think the show is setting us up for a version of Damon that, you know, he's sitting on the throne. He's this power hungry guy that he wants it. I don't think he does. I think he wants to be close. I think he believes that Targaryen should be ruling, that they should be in charge. Um, but that like he doesn't necessarily want him himself. And that's why when the fact that they're having this conversation in Valerian, it can't be misinterpreted from someone who happens to overhear. Right. Yeah. And she seems to not take him too seriously. Yeah, exactly. It does seem like misdirection. Mm-hmm. And um, so he gives her the gifts of the necklace and they also talk about Dark Sister. So if anybody doesn't understand what Dark Sister is, that is his Valerian sword. Well, and, and I actually think this is a significant scene when he gives Rhaenyra uh, the Valerian steel necklace, which she recognized immediately and said, it's just like Dark Sister, which is Damon's sword. And he makes a comment now, they both have an, an aspect of the old world. I think that's important. I think that's similar to the, because the dragons are the old world, but so is Valerian Steel. That's the big deal about Valerian Steel and why Tywin wanted to steal ice from the Stark family, because the Lannisters never got it. You, you Valerian Steel come from, came from Valeria, and you only had steel that still existed from when people first came. So it's a very precious metal in that sense, and not just because it's like one of the most indestructible. Right. Right, yeah. And we already talked about the potential um, sexual tension that was a little bit hard to read in that scene when he puts the necklace on, but that, that was in our first podcast, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But but there is a, a connection and kinship there, even if it's not sexual. Right, there's a friendly... It probably is, but there will be. <laughs> right. Um, if it weren't Targaryens, we wouldn't read it that way. But since it is Targaryens, it's, it's a little hard to tell. 
it, to, from res- a certain sorry, go ahead. Uh, from a certain standpoint, though, f- for the Targaryens, that that is part of how they care about one another. It's not just incest and bloodlines. They actually love each other. So even with Viserys and and Emma, he genuinely loved his wife, and I think she was his cousin. Right. Um, and so that it's just what's normal, and, and and it's no different than if they married outside the bloodline. The love is real and authentic. Right. Yeah, and there's a respect here. It's it's a little bit of a Jon Snow Arya type uh, friendship and respect. It, it seems. Mm-hmm. Next scene is um, Alicent is quizzing Rhaenyra on her histories, and then Alicent brings up that Rhaenyra should be worried about her position with the new child coming, and Rhaenyra says she's not. She likes the position she's in. So that that just shows that you know they're both cognizant of what might be happening, and Alicent is thinking it's better to be closer in line. Well, that that's when, or, or if you're not in line at all, that's when you are a Marcella and you get betrothed to someone and shipped off to Dorne or wherever. Yeah. And then um, the other thing that happens in this scene is just that Rhaenyra seems like she's not paying attention, doesn't know what she's talking about, but then of course she does. She's very well knowledge in the history of, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. So, so she's smart. Next scene, we cut over to Viserys and the festering wound on his back that he got from a cut on the throne. So we kind of discussed that in our shorter episode, but there's possibly some symbolism there. I think you mentioned in our other podcast, is that a metaphor for letting things fester in the realm? Is that what your thought was? I mean, it's funny. I thought it was uh, just a easy metaphor for a lot of things uh just in terms of some foreshadowing um, but then also you, you made the comment of what it's like to be a ruler that after a time it infects you um and so but to me i kind of took it as the the show's way of saying his days are numbered as ruler which i don't think is a huge shocker as a thing you know there, there's not much of a game of thrones to play if you're always having the same person and people are content with that so one thing there was the maesters were discussing, and one of them said something along the lines of the stress affects the body. So there's a number of references in this episode to stress on mm. people. You know, this one, the fingernails with Alessandre, Damon having trouble in bed, mm-hmm. things like that. So it's, it's just an interesting kind of new thing they're doing. And then one other thing I saw from there was um, the old maester suggested leeches, and then the young ma- maester suggested cauterizing it. And then the old maester agreed with the young maester. Really fast. I remember thinking yeah. that the first time we watched it, and then we watched it again. The it, It's like this, because I just remember Sam when he was learning, and the maesters weren't that nice to Sam when he was this you know young buck learning the trade. And the that younger guy was like, we should cauterize the wound. Yes. Right, so it makes me wonder, is, it, is the old man losing a step and it didn't occur to him, or is he playing something here? Yeah, just the same way like Grandmaster Pycelle was doing. They were all playing their own game. Um, even though they weren't always aspiring to the throne themselves, they were backing somebody. Right, so you think it's a it's a fake thing? Immediately after uh, that cauterization comment, you can see the maester speaking to Otto Hightower. And Otto Hightower is talking about how it needs to be kept quiet this this wound that you know a lot of people wouldn't pay too much attention to a wound like that on his back but yet it's already we want to keep it hush hush so there's that aspect to it and then i felt like i remember seeing another moment with hightower and the grand maester when he was like send this to the 
Send this to Old Town right away. Yeah, there's a letter somewhere, which we'll get to. I have that in my notes. Hasn't there's a lot of trust the there in between these two. Between Otto and Viserys, mm-hmm. you're saying? Uh, between Otto and, and the Meister. Maester. Oh, did he give the letter to the Maester? I believe so. Oh, I just thought it was some random guy, whoever takes care of the, the letters. <laughs> you know what? You could be but, right, and it could be just some random guy. <laughs> and that's what the, what is it called at the end? The credits are like, some random guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you might be right. Maesters are in charge of the letters. Because so, that was a very important letter. Yeah. That was around the time when they were talking who was going to, when they were trying to change the rules of succession here. All right, moving on. Next scene is in the bathtub. Really where we find out just how hard it's been for Emma to try to give him a son. With uh, she's, she's having a miserable pregnancy right now. She had she lost five pregnancies in ten years. No, it, it, it's... I guess I would offer it's more than that because you you asked me that and and I I spelled it out in a different way. She, yeah, I said it wrong. Sorry. Five children at some level of development. Yeah, in at some 10 point. Years. But right. one was fully born and died in the cradle. Yeah. And then two were born like they were like stillbirth is where they're past twenty weeks um, and giving birth to a a, a dead child. Um, and then two more earlier on. She said, and that's that's a lot of loss. Yeah, and this particular pregnancy has been very hard on her. So well, she kills her. Well, yeah, obviously, but she she mentions in the bathtub that it's been a miserable pregnancy. Yeah. And Valerian talk, uh, sorry, Viserys talks about his dream. He had a dream that the baby came out wearing a crown, and then <laughs> she was like, "God's help me." Yeah. <laughs> but childbirth is painful enough already. But then they also. He talked about in his dream, he said it more specific, but essentially at the sound of battle while the baby was being born, like hooves riding and shields clashing or whatever. Later, when the baby is being born, the battle's happening in the tournament. So it, it kind of, you know, his dream was accurate-ish the way prophecies and dreams and things like that are in Game of Thrones. They're never quite right, but mm. there's, there's something about them. All right, then we get to Damon and the Gold Cloaks. So they're chest stomping, they're howling like wolves. They talk about the city being in squalor. So this, I, I reread this part in the book, and the show does it in like a montage, right? And it looks like it all happened basically overnight. But in the books, it was months long process. Okay, of, that, that's actually interesting to know because watching this scene again, sometimes it looks like they're literally going into people's houses and just choosing random people. And they made it seem... Not only fast, but arbitrary. Right. Where if it's happening over the course of months it, from the book, it, it that sounds more intentional. Right, yeah. When they're yelling out like, thief, rapist, you don't know if the person's actually a thief and a rapist or if they're just accusing them of that. Which, that's what it looked like to me both times. But even when they're collecting people, it's like they're just catching people who happen to be strolling down the street at that point. Right. So I think they could have done that better, better depending on what they're trying to do. Well, that's just it. Right. If they're trying to misdirect you into thinking Damon's a total savage, maybe they did that. But I don't love the way it was done. Yeah. Um, that felt like we're just here to do some shock and awe for you. Like, true Game of Thrones style, the way when the first show came out, it did a lot of things that you didn't see as much of. I mean, maybe on HBO, but there was just a lot of elements of that. Like, one that's George R. R. Martin's writing... But the show just brought a lot of that. And I think that appealed to a lot of people because it was done well enough in this overall backdrop of a well-made show. But this felt a little, 
even though it's an often used word, gratuitous in that way for me. And when you suggested that we, you know, we watch it again, one of my first thoughts was, oh God, I got to watch people be dismembered again. Yeah. So in the book, it was like, I think it was over a six month period where Damon tried to get order in the city and he did do all the things. He cut off the hands of thieves. He gelded rapists. And um, he didn't say that they executed murderers, but he said that he slew three men in uh, fights in the street. So, yeah, the, the show turned it up, turned it up and shortened it, whatever they're trying to get you to think with that. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I think perhaps you're onto something here. I think we talked about this a little bit uh, in, in the, first, um, the first podcast, and there's a lot of dimension to the vast majority of characters in these series. And I think we fully expect that to continue to be the case here. And this is our first layering of characterization. And I think pretty clearly Damon by what we see of his actions, but also how we hear all this conversation from other people is, is that he's this hot headed, disorganized, power hungry, selfish self, you know, like self-centered person here we get a couple glimpses of some other things here, but it, it seems in a way kind of one dimensional. And, and we've kind of talked about like, oh, well, if you think about Jamie Lannister in the very first episode of Game of Thrones, I mean, he's pushing Bran out the window and having sex with his sister. But yet look how complicated and multi-layered Jamie ended up being. Until the end when he reverted back. Oh, well, I'm blaming that on the showrunners. <laughs> yeah. But then one thing, too, is that when they are talking about it later in the small council, Hightower does admit that they're criminals, or he does say that they're criminals. So it wasn't just arbitrary. He at least says that, you know, whatever. Um, Well, and the point they were also making, even if it was arbitrary, is that crime is a huge problem, and they've got all these people coming in for the tournament, and that if you want King's Landing to get their act together and not be even worse with this influx of a bunch of people, is you gotta lay down the law. And that was part of the, the point. And, and I got the impression that it worked. Damon is kind of a mixture of Jamie and Stannis. You know, Stannis does the same thing when he's uh, going to attack the Boltons and he's gotta keep order in his camp. So he cuts off the hands of thieves and um, burns people who are cannibalizing. And, oh, jeez. Yeah, so he does this hard thing, but you almost, when you read the books, it's different in the show, but in the books, you're like, the, the difference between what Damon was doing and what Stannis was doing is that Stannis was in an extremely terrible situation that he had to keep order on while they're like stuck in the snow and starving to death and, and all this stuff. Whereas with Damon, it just came off as you know, rich kid with some power, at least in this episode. One thing I will say is I did like his armor. He had two different kind of armors. He had the one in the tournament, but then he had armor here. And I don't know if you took note of it. It didn't have the wings, the dragon wings in his mm-hmm. helmet, but it was it was close cropped to his face and it had like a ponytail. It reminded me of Mad Mardigan's armor in Willow. I don't know if you remember what that looked like, except it was black. But it was, it was a nice armor. He does look good. He looks good in all of his scenes. Um, it was one of the most... Jay comments I've ever heard. <laughs> but yeah, so then they start talking about, you know, Damon's police roundup in, in the small council and Hightower's outraged or pretending to be outraged, probably really outraged. A couple of things I noticed on the second time watch through is that Hightower shut down a few other council members again, yeah. like like he did with Cor- Corliss, Corliss, <laughs> um, 
So he's definitely doing the alpha thing there. He's got a Tywin effect a little bit. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was thinking that too. He, he even physically, the way he stands and his height and stuff, but he looks disheveled. And I, I, it didn't fully, I didn't fully appreciate the first time through how recently he lost his wife. Like, we don't know exactly when it was, but it was recent. And it looks like he's still, like, it might have been like a couple of days earlier, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so he could definitely have a Tywin type vibe about him if he cleaned up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But one thing about Hightower that was interesting is he knows that Damon hasn't been in the veil. And so Hightower, through this episode, has a lot of information mm-hmm. that he we're kind of surprised that he has. So he's almost, I don't know if this small council has a master of whispers or if that's him or if he's taken on that role, but he seems to, to have the inside scoop. I feel like in this these types of scenarios, they're, even if it's not official, like, like Lord Varys, there's always some sort of Lord of Whispers. and But it wasn't just Lord Varys who had information. It was also Littlefinger. These were two people who came from nothing and really made themselves and worked their way all the way up to the, the council seats here because of their ability to get information. And they did it in different ways. You mentioned here that probably authentically Otto disliked what Damon was doing in that, that outrage. And I... I suspect that that's probably true and what i wonder a little bit here is at some point um damon when he is fighting with the series he's like he's the second son you know he's trying to kind of set up this characterization that he's a vulture going after things here and why i think that's important is damon is also a second son and hasn't had to try as hard but yet has all this power and prestige and things where i have a feeling like otto also like one just not being a firstborn son and then having to work like really hard for a lot of it it just there could be a lot of resentment there i hadn't thought about that i mean i'm just talking aloud here who knows right. and maybe that's so you're saying that yeah i mean Otto being a second son you know that because it was a different high tower that swore an oath later or? second sons in this type of world have it way different than first sons no what i'm asking is how do you know he's a second son when i believe it's the scene where uh damon is is fighting with with viserys and he's saying you're weak he's like he's a second son like oh he says that yeah oh i miss that okay yeah, I didn't catch that at all. But it, later when Rhaenyra, Princess Rhaenyra, is, everyone's saying fealty to her, it's a different Hightower who gives fealty to her. So I don't Correct. know if that was the older brother yes. or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Hmm, okay. Because Otto cannot. And then um, Damon is really trying to provoke Hightower in this scene. Like, oh, you just lost your wife. Maybe you're not over <laughs> it, yada, yada. And Viserys says, you know, Otto you know that he provokes you out of sport. <laughs> so, like, don't get so upset. But um, for people who enjoy that, for whatever reason, even for misdirection or to take the heat off himself or whatever, sometimes it's hard to not go after an easy target. And Otto seems to be a very easy target. And, and it's a weakness. It's it's a chink in his armor, and Damon knows it. And, and what he's doing here is an establishment and display of power of, I know where you're weak and I'm going to keep showing you how I can hit that, that yeah. weak spot. He's essentially trolling him. And what I remember what was interesting is, so Viserys then says, Otto, you know, like, a reprimand feels too strong of a word, but he, he, he calls out Otto when he stands up. And then Otto, he apologized. I'm sorry, Your Grace. But there was no direct thing to Damon. 
he, he didn't say, hey, you can't keep doing this about like the larger reason why they are, but in that immediate exchange, he did not, again, reprimand feels like a strong word for how that scene went, but he didn't do it to Damon, but he did do it to Otto. Yeah, exactly. I have in my notes that Viserys lets Damon off of the warning, you know, so he's definitely soft on his brother, and he, he admits that later. I was the only one ever to defend him. But, but then he also re- says he's my blood when he's defending him to Otto. He is my blood, and they're trying to get rid of him, and he's like, hey. Well, then moving on, we got some lusty females watching Damon and his I don't know the name of that person his favorite mistress um, I think for lack of a better word she's his girlfriend yeah that's that's what we'll call her henceforth so Damon's with his girlfriend some people are watching but then as we already discussed he he can't keep it up so we just take it up as a stress I guess and she tries to comfort him she says you're not replaceable you know and that you're the rider of Caraxes the dragon and and all this stuff so but here's what's interesting, too, is she is offering him comfort with those words. And this is, again, where this first episode is letting us, is leading us in a certain direction. But we don't actually know why he is stressed here. Just because she's saying that to offer him comfort in that way, he might be stressed by something else. I mean, maybe he just wishes that it's his, his niece, you know, like, right. or maybe he feels like he's letting his brother down. Or he's tired of holding up this bad boy image. Like, there's so many different things of why he could be stressed in that moment. But this is a way of, like, misdirection of the scene where, again, they're setting him up to be this type of character. And it just makes you wonder. Yeah. We are experienced Game of Thrones watchers. Because <laughs> we, we know what they're doing. But, yeah. But she's... what a boring show if everybody's is, is exactly what they appear to be from episode one. Right. All right. Then we finally get to the big tournament. And... You know, similar to the Great Council, let's just contrast this with the tournament in Game of Thrones, which was nice, but it was much smaller. But that wasn't at King's Landing either. So yeah, that was... I mean, it's funny. One of the things that I thought about a little bit more compared to when we talked about the first podcast is I think I was thinking about the way that the tourneys were portrayed in the Game of Thrones, where they weren't as violent with the exception of, like, the mountain and his horse. But you expect that from the mountain. That That's... That, speaks to his character, but it's not everybody there way here. I, I was actually like trying to pay attention to how it was filmed and the crowd and their reaction. And at one point, uh, there was a lot of symbolism. But at this not, not Rhaenyra, Rhaeny, Rhaeny's the queen, yeah. or, or the, the queen that never was that Rhaeny. She's like, Oh, and the day grows ugly. Like they all expect it. This is not anything new. Yeah. And, and actually it is like, it's like they want it for sport. And that actually leads me to an interesting thing that you and I have mentioned a little bit here about they made it a point several times in this episode about how these people have not seen war or this kind of level of destruction um, from like the way wartime can affect not only the soldiers, but people at home and things like that. Like that seems to really be a big theme here that they're setting up is these people are not exposed to that type of hardship and that. Like maybe it, it coils up the spring too much or also you don't know what you're asking for. Right, yeah. They're playing at war, but they yeah. yeah. I think a big um, symbolic thing that was happening here is that Damon cheated, essentially, when he uh, took out Cole's horse and fights break out. People killed each other. Now, when we go back to the original Game of Thrones, when the mountain killed his horse and then tried to kill Loras and the hounds started defending him, they fought for a minute, but Robert did intervene. He stepped in and stopped the fight. But now they're just letting it go. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're letting them fight. So it's like, I think there's some 
they're showing that the Targaryens or the, the people in charge at the height of their power are just a little too comfortable. They're a little too negligent in their responsibilities because they're just letting this violence go. And had the, the mountain killed Loras, that would have been a war mm-hmm. right there. And um, here we saw, I, I, I don't know, I think it was a start, but I'm not sure the guy... A few people got killed, you know. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, whatever. Um, you know, it is interesting, though, because, one, I can't remember if actually the king or the hand were, or at least the king was even there when that happened. I think that's when he was in the birthing room. So he wasn't even there to stop it if he wanted to the way Robert did. Right. So that's one difference here. But two... But somebody presumably could have stepped in. But I, I Yeah, but saying, I don't know yeah. if anyone really has that authority to do that, except for the king. And if you weren't there, then that's the risk that people take. My first thought is like, okay, maybe they all just accept that in order to have this level of prestige, you might die, and that's just part of it. But I don't. That doesn't add up because Hightower's firstborn son was the one that Damon chose, and I don't think that if if your firstborn son was that likely, you know, if you've got this fifty fifty shot of maybe dying an attorney like this, you don't do something that right. risky. That's what a second, third, fourth son who's trying to establish prestige would do, but not your firstborn son. And and my understanding is that's that's who Damon chose and defeated at first. Well, the symbolism is, symbolism also could be that when the king's back is turned, things can run out of control, you know, or whatever. But I feel like because when we first watched it, I was like, this is kind of stupid. Why are they letting all these fights happen? And why when Damon, you know, cheated, was there just some booze? But he was still declared the winner and stuff. But if I look at it as metaphorical, <laughs> would that be the right word? <laughs> Is metaphorical of, of other things, it kind of makes more sense. Mm-hmm. So later on, then when Damon thinks he won, he got really cocky. That is a time where he was acting pretty cocky. Of like, okay, well, you unseated me, but then I took you on this combat, and he's like yelling and doing that. And I thought it was like, like a well edited scene, but he was counting his chickens before they were hatched, and it ultimately like a little reminiscent of Oberyn Martell. Well, and it was also what you were saying here is they're a little, little too confident. Yeah. Yeah, and Kristen Cole was nice about it. Because mm-hmm. with all that death going on, I mean, it would have been a little egregious to kill the heir. <laughs> but he could have. And he could have been justifiably done so. P- perhaps. He probably would have died for it. But Well, and this is somebody who's, who's a dark horse here, who's trying to make a name for himself. Not a lot of people know who he is. He unseats both the Baratheons in the tournament, which... You know, the way they filmed this, it made it seem like that wasn't a super easy thing to do. And then he does it to Damon. And I get, like, I remember uh, Viserys was saying, like, Damon will show up. He can never turn down signing up for attorney, which gives you the impression that Damon's really good at this. So how is this guy that good? He must have had to do a lot of training or something to get there. And then he wins in that hand-to-hand combat. But yet he's still being honorable. And then he asks uh Rhaenyra's for her favor he was the one person who came to her and asked for it so a couple things about him that I picked up so they obviously said he was Dornish that was not you know one thing and he defeated the Brathians. and you know the Brathians are known as a warrior house you know so like it wasn't just that oh he beat two guys it was like he beat two tough guys and then Damon so it's like the, the hardest people to beat he did but then they said he was a steward of Dondarrion who we, we know Beric Dondarrion for 100, 200 years later. But then one thing that was interesting is that he, he said he's also of the Stormlands. And so that's Baratheon territory. But what, what that means, or the possible significance of that, is that the Dornish and the Stormlanders don't like each other. The Stormlanders' kind of job is to enforce the border against the Dornish. 
So somehow he, as a Dornish person, is good with the Stormlanders slash Baratheons. There just might be some interesting, complicated story there that we'll learn. One other thing that was happening during all this fighting and violence, even when Damon was fighting, is that Princess Rhaenerys was um, intrigued. She was entertained. She was smiling. There wasn't a look of concern on her face, mm-hmm. even when, when Damon was possibly going to die there. All right, then, of course, this is all happening. Uh, what would be the word? Interspliced with the birth scene, the C-section scene, which was brutal. And when you first watch it, he says that the king has to make an impossible choice. And it's almost presented as if he has to choose between the baby and the mother. But that's not correct. He basically had to choose whether to definitely kill the mother in order to try to get the baby. But it wasn't like kill the baby, save the mother. It's not like he he got a choice to pick. You could keep the mom... Or you could keep the baby kind of thing. It was the mom was going to die no matter what. And there was the baby might die or might not die. Right. His choice seemed kind of like a bad choice, but it's the logical one. But his big thing that he did was not get her consent, not tell her, you know, anything like that. Which um, she probably would have supported the decision because what else are you going to do? But it was just, I'm not sure what to think about that. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? I don't think it should have been left up to him. Now, I, I think that was, like, again, they're trying to depict how times were in actual real life here, I think, once upon a time. And I, I think that's absolutely, like, the woman couldn't decide any of that. And I don't know how many people, even, like, in that moment could be like, yep, open visceral torso surgery here, like, cut through my entire abdomen here. There's a lot of layers that are getting cut in there. And they're doing it in a, the way that there was so much blood here, like... <laughs> it's a tough that was the other one where I'm like oh god I gotta watch that scene yeah, again I didn't want to like, watch that again um, it was well done I'll, I'll, I'll give them that but it was just it was pretty difficult to watch how that was you know like it, it's like someone deciding how you're dying I gotta say for she's in like what three scenes in, in a very short amount of time and very few scenes they did a really good job of establishing their relationship and establishing her as a real character right even though she's dead now she wasn't like just some npc that oh the the way blah 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 blah. like like they fleshed her out really nicely in a very short period of time and then we move on to the funeral pyre somehow i didn't notice the first time through i I don't know if i was getting something to drink or something but i didn't see the baby wrapped up oh really the first time yeah I remember thinking the second time through of like they handled that well because we as an audience think we already know the mom and we also think, hey, he got his son here. That's how it's starting. And then you get this expanded shot of the small little baby. The one thing that bothered me a little bit, uh, and this is just a weird technical thing, is even with wrapping up the mom, she would still have a belly. You don't give birth and not like at at nine months and then not have a belly. It takes a while for that to come down. Um, And and (laughs) it did not look that way. And that's something where I'm like, you need a woman who gave birth to tell you that. That's a quick, easy thing they could have tell you. But to see that little tiny baby there. It's one of those things that, you know, what they say with good writing, you, you show, you don't tell. And, uh, and I get it, this is a show and not a book, but that was well done of conveying something here. And you, you kind of really feel it, oh, it was for nothing. Like, and, and again, like it, she was going to die anyway, but how she died in such a tragic, painful, horrible way. And trying so hard oh. for, for the sixth time, tenth time, whatever, to provide what her king wanted, her husband wanted. Yeah, that, that was rough. And then 
back to the small council and Hightower decides to very um, <laughs> inconsiderately insist on the order of succession. So that was ill-timed. It's not like Viserys. I don't know if he was worried about that festering thing on his back or that Damon. Maybe he's worried that Damon was killed. They did talk about that. But he pushed it, you know, probably a little too soon. But it is an important discussion to have. So right away we see Coralie's. Do you think they were taking advantage of Viserys because he was in that more vulnerable spot of just losing his wife and son? At some point he says, you know, my family's just been ripped apart here. Do you think that was intentional to do it so soon? Yeah, maybe. That like may, it's a move. Yeah. Hightower might see his moment to try to get Damon kicked off. Well, it worked. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Uh, Corley's, Corals. (laughs) (laughs) Please do that every time. I know, I know, it's brutal. (laughs) He supports Damon right away. They all suggest that Damon might kill the king. That's like Leviathan kind of level, like that level of trying to talk about how to like plant seeds of doubt when... It's not even true, but just trying to get that and how you can wear away at somebody over time. And I don't know if we're going to have that time here, but it's just... And, and, and right away, the series is like, are you saying what I think you're saying? That my brother's going to assassinate, like, by design? And of course, Damon's listening to all this, which I um, pointed out in our other podcast. That, that was one of the few scenes I didn't like, just because it seemed too easy for him to get back there. We don't have to talk about that again. But he's listening to all this stuff, and his reaction's interesting. When they're debating whether he wants the, the throne or not, he's kind of, like, laughing. He laughs. I right. saw that, yeah. So, 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 like, maybe he's just like Jamie in that regard. He doesn't want it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so they're, they're all discussing that. He's listening. And I did really like Hightower's comments, something along the lines of, there's, there's yet to be a man the gods put on this earth who... Uh, wasn't ready to take on absolute power. So whatever he said, some some really good quote there. Um, the gods have yet to, to design a, a person who's going to refuse that. So whatever. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I think what he's basically saying, like someone who would resist the call to that absolute power. The thing is, is I already disagree with him. And I think that there's always people like that who do not want the mantle of that absolute authority that like the king has. And... So I think we have the series here who even came to power reluctantly. Like he did it more in like a Stana style of like it's his duty, but not that he, he totally wanted it. But again, this is you and I kind of reading between the lines of some of these reactions of what we saw here and how he is. But I, I disagree with Hightower in that. I, I, I do think that there are people who, who don't want it. doesn't mean that they don't want no privilege or prestige prestige but some people are kind of happy being in the background and manipulating the person who is at the seat and maybe that's what he's referring to is that all people kind of fall to that but well the exact quote i just looked it up is the gods have yet to make a man who lacks the patience for absolute power which is just good writing it's a good quote whether whether it's true or not and it's in the context of game of thrones it's (laughs) true-ish but yeah then also in this meeting corals corliss um also mentions his wife as a possible successor. And then right away, somebody jumps on him. I don't know if it was Hightower. Somebody's like, you were just back in Damon. You know, what's up with you? Was, but he wasn't. He was just not immediately jumping on the let's hate the Damon bus, you know, bandwagon here. He was kind of coming in and being like, hey, like, this is the, like, because they were saying we need to discuss the matter of succession. And he's like, we already have one. Yeah. Like, Nothing has changed just because we didn't get what we wanted. 
And, and that's not necessarily backing Damon. Um, so I thought that that was kind of an interesting twist on words there. But then, I, you know, this is another time of the queen that never was where once again she gets shot down. But why did she get shot down this time? Right, yeah. Why well, is she not in the discussion if they're going to get rid of Damon anyways? One thing I forgot to say about the tournament is that we see that Corley's and Rainey's have two children together. So there's also that. So Yeah, um, they said that that was one of the things that he said. Not only did she come together as one of the like in terms of succession with the first time when it was being decided, but that she already comes with heirs. Right. Yeah, and one boy and one girl. So there's a male heir there too. All right, yeah, then we get that scene that you mentioned before of Hightower sends a letter to Old Town. We don't know who he's sending it to, and I don't remember if it was the maester that was sending it, so surely that scene was in there for a reason. And then he sends Alicent to comfort Viserys, which we, we already discussed, but he is playing the game hard, willing to put his, his daughter in a position where something might happen, something might not happen, but he wants her to look the part. There was a very big ick factor for me with that scene because... Even if you think that he's trying, and again, this is like they're doing a great job of adding these layers, you know, but like he he shows like he has this adaptability to be hand and, and say certain things and hold that. And, but then he, he, he sends his own daughter and just after losing her mother, asks her to use her gown and it, it like he's willing to use his daughter in such a way like you would never see Ned Stark do that ever. He would rather die than do something like that. And that's just something where it like, there's an ick factor on so many levels, but it just kind of shows he'll probably stop at nothing. He's literally using his own grieving daughter um, for this towards a grieving king. Yeah. Um, so, but what I love then is what Allison of how she kind of she did what she was told, but she came in and she she sat farther away. She didn't encroach on the king's sadness with it, and she actually tried to say, "Hey, I see you. I get this." And I'm not playing, even though I, I just, it, it actually ended up being kind of a touching scene a little bit where, you know, she did what her father said, but she didn't. She took matters right. into her own hands. And, and I kind of hope that that's a little bit of foreshadowing that, that she will stand up for herself as much as she's able to within the constraints of the times and, and her family and, and what she can do. Yeah, indeed. She went in there and she was said, kind. said what she wanted to hear when the same thing happened to her, you know, however long ago it was she knew why she was there but she chose to honor his mourning and i just i like that that was some backbone in her own way but that might also even if she was being 100 percent genuine it could also be what he needs in that moment and he might like that all right then um we see damon in the brothel where you know he is sad he just doesn't look happy he's not celebrating from what we can see and the girl his girlfriend Essentially tries to congratulate him, but any smiles he has is wary and he doesn't look like he's out partying the way that it gets presented to the king later. Yeah, and it also, you get the feel he's playing a role here. Like he's acting sad because he's supposed to act sad? No, no, that he's there, he's present, he bought out this particular pleasure house uh, and... Like, one of his men is saying, like, speech, essentially, here, but, like, it seems reluctant. Like, he's there, but he's not fully present. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's, he's doing the performance of probably what all these men expect and that sort of thing. 
And then, you know, Hightower, again, this Masper Whisperers kind of thing, he gets reports that he corroborates with three different people and presents it to the king that it was a celebration. And Viserys does confront him. He asks him first, did you say it? And he doesn't deny it. Mm-hmm. But we, didn't, we never actually see him say it. So I don't know if he said it or not. Well, and, and the point, though, I mean to make, though, is Hightower is telling him I've corroborated this, but Viserys still felt the need to directly ask Damon rather than kick him out and not even bother to give him that, that audience and ask him himself. So even though technically his hand has said, I've already done all this investigative work, like Robert Baratheon would have just believed Ned right off the bat and not even bothered. Yeah. So it says something, though, that he still, that there's... He gives Damon a chance to defend himself. Which... Yeah, and it, it speaks to there's still some closeness in this family. and, and... Which Damon doesn't really take. You know? he, he says we all grieve in our own ways. Right. And then, yeah, then we get that, you know, that scene where Damon says that he's weak and they're all feeding off you. And he says, I would protect you. And this, again, reminded me of a parallel with Stannis where when Stannis was... Um, None of the other council members wanted Stannis in the council because they were all scared of him. They thought that he would like... He would grind his teeth so loudly they wouldn't hear anything. <laughs> well, they thought that he would just right away like have them executed basically for being shady. You know, Littlefinger <laughs> didn't want him anywhere near the, the council and all that stuff. I mean, it's true. He probably would. Yeah, he would. Yeah, exactly. So Damon's kind of like, um, you know, this weird mixture of, of Jamie and Stannis again in that way, plus the obvious parallel of being the second you know the little brother and the the heir well the council makes it seem like he would be very bad for the realm he's too impulsive it would be just like magar the, the cruel or something uh and and they kind of hide behind that but i i really wonder to to your point if it's really more about that they know that he at the very least would kick them out or not want them there but even worse see them for what they are and and so it, it's they can't have someone who will see through this. Right, yeah. They need someone they can manipulate. The last thing, um, or the, the, the last thing I have in my notes, at least, is when um, Viserys meets with Rhaenyra's, Rhaena, the princess, his daughter, and, they, um, and tells her what he's going to do. I thought about this a lot, um, and I still don't know how I feel about it, how he brings up the, the Song of Ice and Fire being passed from king to king. Which they seem to... But if he just suddenly was assassinated, does it all just end? Well, right. That's the thing. So I guess it ended because uh, it couldn't be passed off after Robert killed... You know, Robert and Jamie killed the king and the prince. It just feels weird. Because he says, great challenge is going to come out of the north, the snows and everything. And it's important that a Targaryen sits on the throne. And a Targaryen wasn't even sitting on the throne. You know? Now, these dreams are not always accurate. But it's like... Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on, on what you consider to be the throne because technically Danny was well, in charge. Was on Iron well, like <laughs> on paper, but yeah. yet Danny was kind of in charge. I mean, they obviously needed Danny to fight the threat, and that could be how the, the prophecy played out, but and it just doesn't fit. I don't know. Um, unless they're setting up a future Jon Snow show. And, I, and he will sit on the Iron Throne that's now melted <laughs> to fight the Great North. I would watch that show. But I don't know if we would want a repeat of the White Walkers. I mean, that's, You know, if it were well so, done, well. I would watch that show. I, I feel like there's some redemption there that <laughs> they, they could do. But going to the scene, though, with Viserys and Rhaenyra, 
you do wonder a little bit how much is her lack of, no, 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 I don't want this. Is that because she wants power herself or is this because she finally has acceptance and is being seen as somebody of worth by her own father? Who, something that she's never had before or both. It doesn't have to be either or. But I, right now, I'm kind of inclined to think like it, it's not that she wants to be queen. She just wants to be good enough for her dad. Well, and when her friend, Alison, asked her, like, aren't you worried about your position? Earlier in the show, she said, no, I like my position mm-hmm. as it is. So, I mean, in terms, I think, of not being in a higher place of power, but I think she disliked never being good enough. Yeah. it was. I thought it was very well acted scene, particularly by, well, by both, but by Viserys when he's like, I've been ignoring what was right in front of me all these years and yada yeah. yada. It was it was good. But then they have the important discussion about the dragons too, where they says um, they don't control the dragons. Viserys says that. And then he says the dragons are what caused the doom of Valeria. So was, he basically said, like, we never should have fucked around with this, you know. Now and I just that was an interesting discussion. He's not a dragon rider. So his history is that he did ride the skull, skull that was in there, I think it was Baylor or um, Valerian, whatever. But then he hasn't ridden a dragon in like 20 years or something like that. Mm. So he's not into it. But yeah, they don't control the dragons, he explicitly said. And then they caused the doom of Lyria. And he said we never should have messed around with it. So that, I thought that was very uh, interesting discussion. Well, and I remember this in Game of Thrones where, oh, the, the guy that, uh, Mormont. Jorah? Yeah, where he's like, these these are still dragons, Khaleesi. Like, there's this part where, like, they were basically talking about this exact thing, is you can't really control them. There's some modicum of it and that you can ride them and sometimes on command get them to do things. You can use them in battle, but they're still going to eat young children and be dragons. Yeah, and there was one particular scene where they gave Danny some attitude, kind of, like, snapped at her and stuff. So one thing, um, it, this closes with... Like Damon taking off and Rhaenyra's getting her fealty oaths or all that. One thing that, like I had mentioned, that we thought it was the same woman. I do now believe, yes, it's the same woman you know, from the brothel. And, yeah, Damon lets her touch and pet the dragon. They ride off together. I paid attention when mm. he flies off. Is she with him to go to the Vale to where his wife is? And she's there. Oh, good on, catch. I so didn't she's see that. riding the dragon. And so she, I definitely think she's at girlfriend status. Yeah. And, and that is, if you, <laughs> that's going to piss a lot of people off because. I can't believe I missed that. I, I saw that she pet him, but I didn't, didn't see that. Yeah, she's wearing a white dress and you can see a white flapping thing. It, it's very small and it's quick. Like basically how important, because that is a pretty bold statement of come ride my dragon with me to go meet my wife. Maybe he's not going to meet his wife. <laughs> That's where he was ordered to, but, you know. Yeah, and you know what? I get the impression David doesn't always follow orders here. Yeah. and But he also likes to provoke. Yeah. So, I mean, Robert did this. He flaunted his, like, it was well known. So, who who knows? Yeah. Um. All right. Well, that was a longer episode. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone needs some, some nighttime falling asleep listening. I don't know if we're going to... I kind of like doing a... Um, Immediate response. First impressions yeah. that we can get out Sunday, do Sunday, and then a longer one later. It's just, it's hard to find time to do this, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> it is funny, yeah, yeah. Us, us fitting it in here. But to get out a real long one on a Sunday night is hard. 
So, yeah. So for you listeners, we might do it twice next week, or we might do it once. We might we might be asking too much of our five. No, now six listeners. Uh, a little shout out to my brother <laughs> if you're listening this far. Listen to it at like two times speed. Yes, that's how I listen to all my podcasts. All right, all right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>